0: Hello and welcome to the Kiskea Chapel Sermon Podcast. Kiskea Chapel is an international church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where we equip English-speaking believers to advance God's kingdom in our community and beyond. You can find out more information about Kiskea Chapel at our website at kiskeiachapel.org. That's Q-U-I-S-Q-U-E-Y-A-chapel.org. Or visit us in person on Sunday morning at our campus in Port-au-Prince on Rue Catalpa in Delma 75. We hope you enjoy this message. The translations of that says God became a human and he pitched his tent in our backyard. <coughs> he came and lived in our neighborhood. <clears throat> First of all, it's shocking that God would decide to come into the world my creation. I would stand at a distance. I would send a prophet. God had done that by the way. In fact, Jesus tells a parable once about a man who sent many messengers and they kept killing the messengers. And so finally he sent his son. I would make a decree from a distance. If I were God, I'd say attention human beings. I wouldn't get my hands dirty. I wouldn't bring the message in person. I'd use a burning bush. I'd use a voice from heaven. God has done this before. I wouldn't come as a human. And I sure wouldn't come as a baby. I'd come as a 30 year old at least. Wouldn't you? Who wants to go through that stuff again? Can you believe this? God in diapers? What? Why why would God humiliate himself so? And I sure wouldn't have gone to the neighborhood he chose. Do you know what neighborhood he chose? Nazareth. Sometimes we refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. If you have any doubt about Whether Nazareth is a nice little town or not, let me read to you what happens in John chapter 1 a little bit later. John chapter 1 verse 45 says this, Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, we've found the one whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, what? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I haven't lived here long enough. What town in in Haiti, what would I say? What? God came to... No, everybody's going to be nice here. I know you're thinking it in your head. (laughs) Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's a hick town. That's backwoods. Those people don't know anything. How could they produce... The Messiah, the Son of God, doesn't make any sense. So here's the question for this morning. Why does God choose to enter into the world and wear diapers? And the answer I'm going to give you has to do with one simple word. In fact, the word's so simple that translators have had a very difficult time figuring out how to translate it. In the Greek, the word is sympathy, we sometimes would say. Take a look at this little chart here. Uh, There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. In fact, so much so that the most recent translation of the Bible, a new version of the NIV, came out and they changed their mind. We're no longer going to translate that sympathy because sympathy means I feel bad for you. Empathy is totally different. It means, I have walked where you walk. I know what it's like. They're different, aren't they? God did not choose to send us a sympathy greeting at at Christmas. I'm so sorry for all the stuff you're going through. He didn't decide to write a little note and say, hey, Haiti, sorry about the earthquake. So sad. He decided, to empathize with us, to come be part of what we're a part of, to experience much of what we experience. There is a big difference between sympathy and empathy. Now don't get me wrong here, sympathy is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I, I know, as a North American, I started coming down to Haiti uh, around 80, 1986 or 1987, and I remember I had deep feelings of sympathy for Haitians and all the things they've gone through. Uh, look at Miss Laurel there. Isn't that incredible? She's always been beautiful. Those are a couple of my boys in, in the their version of a swimming pool in Fond de Blanc. A little different, but I can remember I loved it, but I also felt all this sympathy. (laughs) Oh, the poor people, they don't have electricity. They're still cutting down trees and making coal. I remember the first thing I saw that kind of shocked me in Haiti was women down by the creek with coal burning their hair to straighten it with chunks of coal. I remember thinking, the smell was horrible. I thought, well, what are they doing? And Jean Thomas told me, he said, oh, they're straightening their hair. (laughs) They're burning their hair to make it straight? I felt sympathy. Wow, that's a lot of work. (coughs) Uh, I saw so many orphans. I now have learned that many of them had families, but at the time I didn't know that. And I just thought, wow, I feel sympathy. I didn't experience that. I had wonderful parents who loved me, but I felt bad. I felt bad for people. I also felt really bad about the lack of air conditioning. The first 10 times I came to Haiti, I came in August. Couldn't sleep all night out on the front porch, just sweating. I have since learned wrong time to visit Haiti, (laughs) but I felt sympathy. And I went back to America and I felt really spoiled. I took for granted things like air conditioning, air conditioning and air conditioning. (laughs) And all I could remember, remember this is 1986, 1987, all people talked about the Haitians was the Tonton Makut. I thought, we don't, we don't, I've never had anything like that. I've never been afraid of my own government, of the police. It's like, I felt bad. Well, that continued is every time I came down, I probably came down, Laurel and I 10 or 12 times. And then we got to post earthquake. If you can go to the next slide there. I don't know how well you can see that. That That's John Thomas up there. I know some of you know him, but I got a phone call. I don't remember. Was it just a few days after the earthquake? John Thomas called us, and John has never asked me for anything, anything. (laughs) And he says, Craig, can you get me some money? And I thought, whoa. He said, we have to feed hundreds of kids three meals a day. We have money, but all the banks we have our money in were crushed in the earthquake. We can't get it out. But we still have to feed these kids. Could you get some money, strap it to yourself, go to Jamaica, I've got some skydiving pilots who will fly you up into the mountains of Fond de Blanc. And initially one of my sons was like, we're skydiving in with money? That's awesome. (laughs) I just said, no, 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 Miss Laurel, no. (laughs) Wasn't gonna do that. So even worse, we found out later, we're gonna try and land in their soccer field up there, which I, I think MAF goes there all the time now. But at the time, we didn't know if that worked. We didn't know if it was long enough and there was no air traffic control. So John told me, he said, you just fly in this, these coordinates in this region and look for me out in the field with a long stick and a white flag waving it. That'll be me. That's where I want you to land. I can remember those Jamaican pilots, the look on their face. Everybody they would see anywhere out in that area, they'd go, is that John Thomas? <laughs> so no. So we finally see this bearded Haitian standing out in a field, waving a big white flag. We go, jean Thomas. And they go, that's him? I go, yeah. They go, you need to be sure. I say, who else would be standing out in a field waving a flag here? So we landed, and we had so much rice and beans on the plane, they were worried that too much weight. They were worried they wouldn't be able to stop. And also, in Blanc, <laughs> the children had never seen a plane land. So even though they had ropes out, they explained to the kids, you must stay behind the rope. When the plane's coming in, whoosh, hundreds of kids are running towards the plane. And I can remember, again, these Jamaican pilots going, They were just like, what are we going to do? Kids are running in front of the plane. Well, we made it (laughs) kind of afterwards. uh, Jean's sister is Gladys and Gladys. Now she works at Hopital Espoir. Am I saying that right? But at the time, uh, she had a children's hospital and it was one of the few hospitals that wasn't crushed in the earthquake. I remember going with Jean to see what's going on in Haiti. Those are just a couple of the pictures. That was the place we used to stay. It was called the Wall House. Uh, it was a guest house. And <laughs> all I can remember, it was, it was so sad. There was a man standing on the rubble, I think, or what was left of a balcony saying, we're going to clean all this up. You come back and stay with us. <laughs> we we're just looking at it like, oh my, how, how could you do that? I don't know how that could happen. When we went to Gladys's hospital, I'll never forget what we saw. So many people with crushed limbs being brought in in wheelbarrows and they were doing amputations in the street. They just had to, to save the person. And when they were done, they wouldn't put them in a bed and take care of them. They'd give them a bag of fluids. They'd put them back in the wheelbarrow and say, wheel them someplace safe. I remember again, that feeling of sympathy. Wow, I take so much for granted. Even though I know these are not the most important things in life, I have to tell you, I felt really strong levels of sympathy in my heart. Uh, in fact, one of these, uh, well, I don't think I have that. We, down towards the water, we saw a school that had been several stories, so they just pancaked. And I remember thinking, are there people alive under there? And I don't know whether he just didn't understand (laughs) my English, but he was like, yes, we. (laughs) I'm like, oh, what? But they didn't have equipment to move the rubble. And I thought, this is horrible. I had sympathy. It's not a bad thing, even though it can be bad, can it? Sometimes sympathy turns into pity. Not good. But sometimes sympathy begins to move towards empathy, a desire to say, I want to be here and help. Jean Thomas always used to tell us one of his principles for missionaries coming to Haiti. He says, you must relocate. You can't fix their water correctly unless you do it with them and it's your water. You can't change the schools unless your children go to those schools. And I've always thought, you know, he's right. Because this is exactly what uh, John, the Gospel of John, says about Jesus. He relocated. He came into our neighborhood. He didn't say, let me see if I can fix this from a distance because I feel bad for these people. He entered into our neighborhood and became one of us. When the problems become your problems, I'm kind of, I've only been here three months living and I'm learning, oh, it's totally different because the electricity is my electricity. (laughs) I go, "Uh uh-oh. I'm, I'm maybe starting to move a little bit from sympathy to empathy to go, yeah, I, I know how frustrating it is to get something done when all day I'm trying to make one phone call. <laughs> and there's all these technical problems that I have to figure out in order to make one phone call. God is the God of empathy. He knows where you live and he has been there. He may not have been in Port-au-Prince, but he's been to Nazareth. And some would say, that's far worse. I don't know. See, God became a man and dwelt among us because he wanted to express empathy. Not just I feel bad for you, but I know how you feel. Have you ever had a really difficult problem and you try and share it with someone who's never had that problem and they just kind of look at you like, hmm, well, I'll pray for you. It's totally different than when you share a problem and somebody says, oh, I struggled so much with that problem myself. Oftentimes, they have a very different set of things they say to us. God doesn't just feel bad for us. He can identify with everything we're going through because he knows that is the message of Christmas. It's why the word in the Old Testament is, we will call him Emmanuel. Because he will become one of us. It is essential that God took on human flesh or as we say in theology he incarnated himself into flesh. It's an essential part of the Christian faith because if he didn't, he could not empathize with what you and I are going through. He can have sympathy, he can even have pity, but he couldn't empathize. I want you to think about this for a second. I'm I'm just going to go through this quickly, but uh, it's really to make a point. Does that go click it and see if it all, yeah, all comes down at once. So let me just go through it quickly. Jesus was born to a poor single mother. In fact, so single that when she got pregnant, her husband to be Joseph said, ugh, maybe I should just quietly divorce her. Jesus's birth was very complicated. Everybody had a different view. Can you imagine that if your God, would you be born into a single parent family? Joseph obviously functioned as Jesus's father, but not for very long. We don't know the details, but he's not mentioned again almost immediately after Jesus's birth. We never hear anything about him. The second thing, he couldn't even get a room for his birth. He didn't even have a home birth. They were traveling and they couldn't get a room. And I know sometimes we say he was at an inn, but that wouldn't be likely. More than likely, he was born in what we would call a sheep's cave. Uh, I've been in many of them in Israel. They're just little cutouts in the side of cliffs where you could shelter from the storm and often the sheep herders would push their cattle, their sheep, their goats, they would push them into those to protect them at night. That's where Jesus was born. You know anybody that's got a worse story than that? Probably, but not many. He lived as a homeless street person as an adult. In Luke chapter 9, when somebody basically asked him, now where do you live? He's like, the son of man has no place to lay his head. I don't have any place. I'm a homeless guy. He saw crowds follow him. Many, many people followed him. And then almost as quickly, they ditched him. Every once in a while, he would say something and said, all the crowds left. (laughs) In fact, at the end of his life, the very crowds that had followed him are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We would rather Barabbas, the criminal, be set free than this Jesus, crucify him. You ever had people turn on you like that? I know in Haiti, you know, uh, since I've been here, you know, there's this fear somebody's going to throw a rock through my windshield. Do You know what Jesus' fear was? Somebody was going to throw a rock through his brain. In fact, several times, particularly John chapter 10 tells us the Pharisees started picking up rocks to stone him to death. And oftentimes he slips out. He lost his closest friend to death. His closest friend was a man named Lazarus. Since he had no home, often when he went to Jerusalem, he would stay at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And then he found out Lazarus had died. And in fact, in the shortest verse in the New Testament, it says when Jesus saw the people weeping and he saw his friends, Mary and Martha, weeping, it says simply, Jesus wept. I know a lot of people are like, well, God can't understand. I lost my father. I lost my brother. No, no, no. He totally understands this. He was betrayed by maybe his closest friend, Peter, denies him three times. Judas sells him out with a kiss. With a kiss, he betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. You think you have corrupt politicians in your culture? Every culture has these, by the way. Jesus goes through a trial with a whole lineup of corrupt politicians. It begins with the high priest who says, hey, let's set this guy up. Judas, can you set him up? I'll give you 30 pieces of silver. That's called a corrupt leader. Then they take him to Pontius Pilate and they pressure him like, Pilate, we can get you fired if you don't crucify this Jesus. So what does Pilate do? This man's innocent, so I wash my hands of this, but I'll give you what you want. I'll turn him over for crucifixion. He's tortured. In fact, the text says that even on top of the physical torture, They spent a lot of time hurling insults at him. The word they use is they mocked him. They mocked him, made fun of him. You feel like maybe you're the only person that anybody's ever made fun of, been picked on, been bullied? Read Jesus. And finally, in Matthew chapter 27, even on the cross, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Loosely translated means, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? And it wasn't just stuff that people did to him. Sometimes Jesus chose to get into a mess. Uh, He could have stood 12 feet away and healed the leper, but he didn't. He did something illegal. He went and touched the leper and healed him. He could have chose to ignore the harlot who was caught in adultery and they're getting ready to stone her, but he didn't. He got involved and he goes and literally touches her and says, is no one left to condemn you? She says, no one. He says, well, then I don't either. Go and sin no more. He intentionally chooses to hang out with sinners, Matthew, the tax collector. And even when he's arrested, do you know what he says? Did you guys not think I could defend myself? I could call down a legion of angels and wipe you and the entire Roman army out like that. But I'm choosing this suffering. I'm choosing this suffering. He doesn't stop it. He chooses the ultimate picture of suffering on the cross. So do not come and try and tell me your sob story about all the horrible stuff you've been through. Nobody understands because that is the picture of Christmas. God has chosen to participate in your neighborhood. He knows what you've been through. And yet look at Hebrews. Chapter four, verse 15. If you get anything out of this morning, this is the verse I want you to remember. Here's what it says. Therefore, we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God. So let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to, remember they changed this, empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin, he didn't retaliate. He didn't blame all of his problems on all the things he'd been through. He willingly chose the cross. This is why God becomes a baby at Christmas. Because it's the only way he could become a high priest who could empathize with everything we're going through, yet without sin. Read a story about a Hindu man who, um, when the missionaries tried to tell him about Jesus, he says, no, I, I cannot believe in a God who would humiliate himself so low as to become a man. Years later, he was working, trying to write a research report on ants. And so he was trying to get close enough to the ant hill to study them, but his shadow would scare them off. Every time he'd get close, they'd run. A colleague of his said to him, oh, if only we could become an ant, we could study them. He said, that's the first time I began to contemplate why would God become a human being? That was the day he says his conversion began. He realized he could sympathize with the ants, but until he became one of them, he could not have empathy for them. He really didn't even know what their problems were. He didn't know what their struggles were. He could only observe from afar unless he could figure out how to become one of them. This is another distinction between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy causes us to sometimes give a few goo. Or if you're an American, oh, here, let me give you some dollars here. Maybe that'll fix some things. Has it? No, because sympathy can't do that. Sympathy doesn't really know what the problems are. They can deal with symptoms, but not the root causes. You know, the longer I'm in Haiti, the more I go, you know, there are all kinds of symptoms, but the root problem is people do not believe Jesus when he says you should treat other people in the same way you would like them to treat you. I go, it's not much more complicated than that. If we could create a situation where Haitians begin to love as Jesus taught us to love, where we care more about the other than we care about how quickly I can get up Kinscough Road. Things begin to change, but sympathy only throws money at the symptoms. It often doesn't even know root causes. Empathy says, I need to move into the neighborhood before I figure, you know, my simple solution. Well, here's how we fix the electricity problem. (laughs) It's like, it's a lot more complicated, isn't it? It's like uh, there are so many things that play into it. This is the same in America. There there are all kinds of problems that come from affluence. We have children who are insanely wealthy and as a result, they don't know how to do anything. They don't know how to do anything. They just had money thrown at them. Nobody really understood The root causes. God became a man in Jesus, not just so he could throw a few alms our way. He came to fix the root problem. And I know our world tries to say, oh, the root problem is education. Let me tell you, America is filled with educated idiots who are lacking in wisdom. The more education we get, it seems the more foolish we become as a culture. Education isn't going to fix what's broken with human beings. It's just not going to do it. I don't care what anybody tells you. Jesus understood that the root problem was sin. As Paul puts it in Romans 7, the stuff I want to do, I can't do. The stuff I don't want to do, I find myself doing all the time. There is a law within me, the law of sin and death. And it destroys the things I want to do. Jesus understood that. He became one of us so he could understand the root problem was sin. And so he spent his life trying to figure out what he could do about that root problem, sin. His solution, plan from the beginning of time to die on the cross so that he would take our poverty and we would take his riches. That was the plan. That's a plan of empathy. I understand where you're coming from. And so I'm not just throwing money at it. By the way, churches do this too. They, let's throw a little religion at it. Maybe if people become a little more religious, doesn't fix anything, does it? It actually makes it worse. Did you know America is the most churched country in the world? Ouch, it's not working. Because our need isn't a little more church. Our need is someone to deal with the root problem of sin. And this is why Jesus came into the world. I'm going to skip the next slide and go to the last one there. I want to read the rest of this verse to you. Verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize But we have one who's been tempted, but he didn't sin. But look at verse 16. So, so, if this is true, if the baby in the manger was God in flesh, God in diapers, if that's true, so we need to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace. Jesus did not throw money at the issue. You know what he's throwing at the issue? Mercy, grace, and whoever you are. If you come to the one who enfleshed himself in the baby at the manger, you can have confidence. You can take whatever stuff you're going through and he will understand it and he will show to you mercy and grace. By the way, have you ever met someone who's had problems like you've had? When you share your stuff with them what do they do? They give you a lecture. An alcoholic who meets another struggling alcoholic, he'll say to him, "Oh, I understand. I understand how hard this is." They show mercy. They show grace. This is the high priest we have, folks. So when we come on Tuesday to celebrate Christmas Eve, what we're really celebrating is that we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted, and yet he's without sin, so we can come to God with confidence that whatever our struggles are, he understands, and he will show us mercy and grace. I read a story, I don't know if this is true, it's almost too good to be true. So I don't know about some missionaries who were in Russia in an orphanage uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And they told the kids the Christmas story because these children had never heard it. They told them a story that God came and he became a child in a manger. So they described the manger and they said, now kids, we're gonna, we're gonna draw pictures of that manger so you can remember this story. And so the kids you know, went about drawing their little picture of the baby Jesus laying in some hay on a wooden manger or whatever they told them. And one of the missionaries came around and saw a little boy named Misha. I, I believe he was five or six. And she said, Misha, tell me about your picture. Misha says, this is the story you just told us. She said, hmm, there's two babies in the manger. There, There was just one baby in the manger at Christmas. There's not two babies. And the little boy started sobbing, put his head down, said in his way through the translator, I'm so embarrassed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that. She said, why did you put two babies in the manger? She said, as I was drawing, Jesus told me there was plenty of room for me to get in the manger too, because I don't have anyone who cares about me. And he told me I I could live with him forever. So I drew two babies in the manger, I'm so sorry. And then the missionary started sobbing. But this is the message of Christmas. That baby born in the manger is our high priest who understands our struggles and says, come unto me, all of you who labor or heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You come with me. I got you forever. This is the message of Christmas. If you don't know this yet, this Christmas, my prayer for you is that you will discover that was God coming into our neighborhood as flesh and blood so he could understand whatever it is I'm going through today. I'm going to get in the manger with that baby. I'm going to get in the manger with that baby. Let's pray. Father, help us. Sometimes I, I think of you as a distant God, arms crossed, sternly looking at me in my struggles, shaking your head, saying, how could he do this after I've done all this stuff for him? But you're not. You stoop low. You become one of us in order that you might understand the temptations we struggle with. But even better, Lord, You did not succumb to those temptations. You didn't give in. You didn't become a sinner like me, but instead you raised me with grace and mercy to be as righteous as you are. You traded your righteousness for my sinfulness. And that's the baby in the manger. That baby now seated to the right hand of the father Lord of lords, and King of kings. Help us this Christmas come to know your empathy. In Jesus' powerful name, amen.